You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. John Wertheim here, and it's this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. I am fresh back from Australia, back from Melbourne, and thoroughly jet-lagged, but not so jet-lagged that it will prevent me from talking about the Australian Open 2018, wrapping it up with Jamie Lasanti. We've made a vow to involve Jamie more on our podcasts. Um, so good to be doing this with you. Um, I don't know how you want to do this. Pepper me with questions. I'm also curious on your take um, consuming this event stateside. Always one of these strange events where, you know, these these matches uh, are starting sometimes at 4 or 5 in the morning. And it feels like different months, much less different days in uh, Australia versus the U.S. But um, it, it's sort of the, the, the quirky event that always uh, ends up on an up note. And that seemed to be the case this year. A lot of... Uh, a lot of strange results, unfortunately, a lot of injuries that we can talk about. But in the end, what will people remember? They will remember Carolyn Wozniacki breaking through, winning her first major. And, of course, they will remember the last image of the tournament, which is Roger Federer beating Marin Cilic, Grand Slam number 20, defending. Here is a 36-year-old man, father of four, and he has won Jamie Lasanti. Three of the last five majors, go figure. Um, this is sort of a, a metaphor for tennis in general. It is a sport that succeeds in spite of itself. Uh, anyway, good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. What, what, Whatever uh, it is. It feels what like it's meal? April. Yeah, what exactly. meal are you going to eat? That's a good way to do it. <laughs> All we have had is iced coffee. It feels like it's like April. Has baseball season started yet? <laughs> I. This is the only time of the year where I don't know whether or not I should be drinking coffee or not. Like the other night, I had to wait until like 4.45. To, I, I brewed it, but I, I, there's something about me that I couldn't pour it. Into 3 a.m. coffee is a weird place it's a weird thing i feel like you you get the jet lag without the jet yeah. you're, you're waking up and doing uh superior work producing tennis coverage uh for, from back home and it's yeah this is this it's, is a strange strange it's a event. dark place at like 3 30 in the morning but 
tennis Twitter helps you because there are a bunch of crazy people who also wake up. That's that so funny. It's I not part that. of their job. They actually wake up to to watch and then they go to work, which is pretty impressive. So it's nice to see the random people who wake up or wake up and then fall asleep and then wake up and something crazy has happened or you know the match is completely different than it was when they fell asleep so it's uh it's exciting charles barkley i'm sure he didn't say this originally but i've heard him say this you, you sleep when you die but um no it's, it's actually funny you you see this on tennis twitter and you say wait they're not in australia and you say oh my god it's 3 30 in the morning and they're uh they're watching this match um anyway um uh, i'm curious pe- pepper me with any questions you like but i'm, I'm i am curious how you uh took this event in because you know last year 2017 we had roger federer come in seated 17th nobody quite knew what he had in store would it back hold up was this sort of a victory lap it was the hard to believe this was only whatever 54 weeks ago but this was the the murray djokovic age seemed to have supplanted the uh the federer nadal age and what happened in australia last year we had roger rafa in a five-set final a, a Typical classic match. Federer was back, and little did we know that was only going to catalyze his entire season. Same for Nadal. We also had Venus playing Serena in the final. This year, a little different. Obviously, Serena not there for for good reason. Uh, Venus Williams did not have a particularly successful go of it. Lost uh, by about lunchtime on the first Monday. Sloane Stephens, our reigning Grand Slam champion, um, has really had a tough go of it. She lost the first day. We had... You know, Andy Murray, not post, Novak Djokovic, even from his first match uh, against Donald Young, it was clear that um, something was still still awry with that right elbow of his. Dan Vavrinka clearly came back from injury too soon. First week, um, a, a little sketchy, a little patchy. Some of the you know, Zverev lost, so we didn't have the young gun angle. Um, again, Roger Federer saved the event in the end, and, and Wozniacki as well on the women's side. But um, Australian Open 2018, a much different tournament than uh, Australian Open 2017. That Some, I will say. Somehow everything always works out by that that second Sunday, second Monday. You think like the first week you're like, oh gosh, what's gonna happen the ne- the second week, and then things do fall into place. I wanted to ask you about the injuries because, as you said, most of everything you said was, you know, besides Sloane Stevens, it was kind of a result of lingering injuries from 2017. Uh, First, Nadal, his injury, had to retire, which never happens. He never he never quits. And do we do you think it's his iliopsoas muscle? Is that correct? So sort of the muscle that comes all the way from your back to your front of your thigh right, that kind right. of helps you move that leg and hip flexion and all this stuff. So very important. Um, my concern is that a small muscle tweak minor injury as they say is this something that could if he's not treating it right not taking the time to heal that could extend into an injury like something like Andy Murray has that's a little bit more serious he's out for a long time or do you think he'll be able to sort of nip it in the bud and be back yeah I mean he he well first of all you you saw him in that match and Nadal's number one seed. He's playing Nadal tennis. Good match against Chilich. He's up two sets to one. He's this crazy celebration. And then you saw something happen. He pinpointed when exactly it happened, which actually I think was something of a relief that it was one point in particular. It wasn't just one of these cumulative workload injuries. Mm-hmm. This was um, a new one for Nadal as far as we saw. But, you know, he was getting 
he was sort of getting treatment on a hip. And anytime t- tennis injuries and hips tend not to go, you know, t- tennis careers and hip injuries don't tend to uh, play well with each other, as we see with Andy Murray. And to see Nadal in a quarterfinal of a Grand Slam just pull the ripcord, as we say, and uh, and, and retire, you figured something was, was really bad. He was, just to get to his press conference, he was clearly laboring. He said, oh boy, this this is not good. The next day he gets an MRI, and, and as you say, it, it is that SOAS injury that a number of players have had. Um, yeah, I don't I mean, I, I tend, I try not to speculate on injury. That said, when the camp sends word saying three weeks, um, that I take as a, as a fairly good sign. Um, I think there's a, there's a larger question that Nadal raised about why is it that that was my next four point. four of the you know four, four of the if we have a big five four of them are currently injured. Yeah. Ironically, the oldest is healthy. I think Roger Federer is becoming a little bit the exception that that proves the rule. I mean, I think people are saying, well, how how bad can tennis be? How hazardous can it be when this guy who's 36 years old is still healthy? But um, boy, injuries are, are a big part of the sport right now. And whether it is the string technology, I mean, you know, Mary and I talked about this on the podcast a few weeks ago, whether it's the string technology, the open stances, hardcore tennis, overtraining, whatever it is, um, something something ain't quite right. And injuries are playing way too big a role in this. And I think, uh, you know, things like retirements and matches played tend to be proxies I mean, I'm not sure that's the best way to uh, determine whether the sport is getting less healthy but there are metrics on work rate and exertion and intensity those seem to be going way up one of the data guys at tennis Australia was telling me that if you look at exertion Djokovic and Murray have played as much hardcore tennis for their career as Roger Federer has even though they've been on tour for you know five fewer years and that's because they work so much harder so it's unfortunate. I mean, again, Roger Federer sort of cloaks a lot of this, and this is, to his credit, this is not a knock. He clearly, whether it's scheduling or whether it's his flexibility or whether it's his team, he's clearly doing something right. But it's unfortunate that we're not out of January and four of the top five stars in the men's game are uh, all in various states of disrepair. I, I think for Nadal, you asked about him specifically. Um, here's someone who's knows about injuries, he's been battling various injuries, all sorts of injuries, you know, backs and knees and wrists. I mean, that's one of the troubling parts, too, that all sort of different body parts are being implicated. This is, an, I think this is a new one for Nadal, but uh, this is someone who knows about managing recovery and rehabilitation. He's supposed to play an event in Acapulco, and um, if you go by this three-week statement that is camp released, he sh- should be able to still make that. So the good news is that doesn't appear to impact his schedule. Uh, you raise a good question. A lot of times we see players get a, a minor injury and then overcompensate. So an ankle injury becomes a knee injury. Yeah. Um, you, you hope that's not the case. Again, Nadal is a player who at this stage in the game is very experienced about playing with pain, playing through pain, what's manageable, what sort of what would uh, be a best advice to take some time off. But, you know, he's still ranked number one. Funny enough, if, if Federer had won one of those matches in London, if he had beaten you know, David Goffin in London, uh, Federer would have overtaken Nadal by winning the Australian Open. But um, you, you hope for Nadal, he's healthy. You hope to see him in Indian Wells in Miami, and then obviously onto the clay. I mean, I, th- I think one story that um, is going to be interesting and worth following, does Roger Federer do what he did last year mm-hmm. and take off the clay season? Or especially if the king of clay, Nadal, is less than 100%, does Roger Federer say, wait a second, 
yeah, clay tends to be my toughest surface and it demands the most of me physically, but let's see, I've won three of the last five majors. I can play on this stuff. I have won the French Open. The one guy who I probably won't beat even on my best day is either not playing or not 100%. If Nadal isn't 100%, or or let's say Nadal doesn't play the French Open, can, can you think of a player you would pit Federer against in a best-of-five match that you would bet on beating him? I mean, I think Roger Federer, if, if Roger, if Rafa Nadal is not in the draw, Novak Djokovic doesn't make a radical improvement, Vavrinka doesn't make a radical improvement, if Rafa Nadal is not in the draw, I think Roger Federer today might be your French Open favorite. Why would he not give yeah. that a go and go for number 21? Conversely, though, I think that if Nadal thinks about scheduling as a way that Federer has in the past or you know we talk about Serena kind of doing the same thing with her schedule tailoring it she's not playing as much and she's really streamlining it what if Nadal decides you know what like Federer did last year I'm I'm going for Wimbledon he says I'm I'm going for this French Open title so he sort of tailors his schedule and you know maybe he if the injury doesn't get better or something he skips some of those smaller tournaments doesn't play certain part of the spring season and just go straight into preparing for the French. I mean, I don't think, I, I don't yeah, know. That I wouldn't think, be great. No, I mean, that wouldn't be if, if Nadal said, you know what? I don't need to play Indian Wells and Miami, or I don't need to play four events uh, leading up to the French open. I could definitely see that. I mean, I think honestly, I think that's something we're seeing in all sports that we have this moment now where careers are going longer than ever. As we record this, we are uh, six days away from a 40-year-old man as the favorite to quarterback the winning Super Bowl team. We see, you know, Floyd Mayweather. We see this all, all across the board. We're seeing careers expand and elongate. And I think part of that is technology and part of that is science and part of that is knee surgeries that used to take nine months to recover from now to take nine weeks. But I think part of that is also that athletes are choosing their schedules more prudently and are willing, you know, LeBron James isn't going to play 82 regular season games. And if that means he's adding a few years to his career, that's great. Serena Williams is not going to play 18 events. And if that means she's still going strong at 36 and after giving birth, that's great. Roger Federer can skip the clay. So I think athletes are realizing that there's a long game to be played here with their scheduling, and they're willing to give up, whether it's bonuses or whether it's rankings, they're they're prioritizing a longer career over sort of the week-in, week-out uh, benefits to playing a full schedule. So so back long long-winded way of saying that um, if Nadal, like Federer, made some alterations in his schedule to really prioritize things like winning another French Open, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I wanted to ask you about some players that either impressed you the most during Australia or some players that sort of, not disappointed, but maybe made you worry a little bit more about, you know, what's going on, what what they're, what they're doing. Um, one person that came to mind for me for the latter was uh, Madison Keys. I mean, she, not that she had a bad tournament, but... She plays the first week. She plays like near perfect tennis for, you know, seven days. And then she gets in the quarterfinals and she can only win three games against Kerber. Is that a product of Madison Keys fighting nerves again or just Madison Keys? Is that her or was that just really Kerber playing out of her mind, sort of really elevating her, her game this week? That's a, that's a good one. Um, 
yeah, I, I would say kind of a B grade for Madison Keys. Great first week. She's coming off at the previous major at the U.S. Open 2017. She reaches the final. Um, doesn't have much response. She wins six matches, plays great, and in the seventh match um, does, does not play great, does, has a really rough day at the office. And that, that was a little bit the pattern in Australia, where for the first week, as you say, she looked terrific. She had the best serving stats of anyone. She was um, cruising through her matches. And then against Kerber, she really had no answers. And I, I think we see this. I mean, I think some of this is a function of her game. And we see this with, with big, flat, you know, heavy players. There's, there's not always a ton of, uh, of plan B. Uh, you know, if they're, if they're hitting their marks, great. And if they're not, it could be a long day at the office. I think the other thing, too, is a lot of times in, in sports, certainly in tennis, we see these comebacks, right? So we see, you know, uh, Pliskova get on the board a point for 4-0 against Holop, and Holop storms back and wins the match, and we see these sways in momentum. A lot of times, though, we have the opposite, which is a, a player gets off to a rough start. You know, Madison Keys gets in a, in a deficit in a hurry, and then instead of clawing her way back in the match— she starts to go for too much. And I think some of this is Kerber, I think, is a singularly bad opponent for Madison Keys. The lefty look is always difficult. She gets a lot of balls back. She's probably um, close to being a comparable athlete. But um, but Madison Keys just didn't really have many answers. And that, that match got away from her in a hurry. And again, instead of changing tactics or instead of uh, sort of... Um, I don't want to say problem solve, but but instead of sort of changing things up, I, I think Madison Keys just went for too much. I mean, I, I was right there um, on the court for that match, and mm-hmm. it just flew by. Yeah, I mean, I think it was fifty-two minutes or something like yeah, that. Uh, and um, so, yeah, does Madison Keys is the takeaway? I can beat anyone on any given day, and for the first four rounds, I look like a world beater, or is it this was another? big match where um, I, I didn't really I didn't post much so I, I mean I think there's a lot to like about Madison Keys's game <clears throat> you um, she needs to find that that quote-unquote plan B in exactly. order to to really break through yeah there wasn't um, yeah and instead of uh, instead of sort of reassessing during the match and, and making some adjustments it was the opposite where she just went for more and more and uh, again she had one of those I mean I think Ker- Kerber had seven errors in that match so obviously she that was getting, help. yeah, that doesn't help either. Exactly. And I'm sure Madison Keys watched that back. And was, I mean, and, but that's not unlike how Stevens played in that final. I yeah. Mean, same thing. She exactly. really like at one point she, anything she hit, I mean, it was just, everything was going her way. So I, I don't know, but I, I, there must be something to be said about Keys getting herself in that kind of situation or, or finding herself in that, maybe not getting herself, but finding herself in those kind of matches uh, more than once. One thing to, you know, some, you get someone, an opponent on a day where they're just unbelievable. They can't, you know, everything goes their way. But if she kind of keeps finding herself in that, that space, I think, like you said, there's got to be something. She's got to win the big one one day, I think. It's just like sort of like Wozniacki sort of figured out the way to Yeah, I mean, I think Hollop is in that conversation. She's probably even more urgently than uh yeah, yeah, yeah. than keys as someone who you, you just are waiting for them to break through i mean i do think some of these matches we conflate i mean i think there is a conflation some of these matches we separate like who played poorly who played well who choked who met the moment and the more you watch these matches you realize that we don't have these gradations like that it's it's all everything fits together mm. so a lefty opponent who's not missing balls makes you go for too much and she's playing well, but you're not playing your game. And I think it's, it's, I think people sometimes just look at a stat sheet and say, you know, 
who choked, who who came back, who had a weak mental performance, and you know who played poorly, who played well. But I think it all sort of it's it's sort of one complex mosaic on on the court. And I think I think specific to Keys, I, I think part of it is just probability wise. She hits such a big ball that at some point she's going to win fourteen sets over two weeks. She's going to win those seven matches. But um, but yeah, it's it's weird because those are two majors where she's made nice runs and she's made it to the second week and there's a lot to like. But also two matches where I, I don't want to say she hasn't shown up, but th- these were not three set battles that she lost six four in the third. I mean, these were two the U.S. Open final and that match that you referenced, Jamie, with Kerber are two matches that were just lopsided under an hour. You want to talk about Halep for a bit? Obviously kind of heartbreaking. A lot of people were torn going into that final because even, you know, Wozniacki said it herself, someone was going to walk away kind of really disappointed, right? I mean, it was... Yeah, that was a, it, yeah that's a good way to look at it. Every, everything was sort of on the line for both players. Um, I mean, hell of a match. It, yeah, Halep, great match. Yeah, great Halep match. Halep literally uh-huh. played in probably the three matches of the tournament. Um, you know, she played unbelievable. I mean, I've ha- I had people watching that... Lauren Davis match that third set I had people who openly dislike tennis or just have no care for tennis watching that third openly set dislike tennis I know I don't even know why I'm with, friends, Lo- with, with Lauren da- with, uh, with but Lauren yes Davis. that with that watching that third set with Lauren Davis so you got a feel for Halep uh she went got treatment at the hospital um apparently overnight uh you it's know it's like MMA <laughs> that's what I mean yeah. no again we talk about injuries I mean I you know at, at some level if nothing else with these injuries and with, with Halep uh, getting an IV and going to the hospital after playing in a Grand Slam final, it does sort of splinter the myth that tennis is this uh, this sort of fey country club sport. The flip side is this, this should not be happening. Um, I think, you, you know, you're right. I mean, somebody said, who should I root for? And you say, boy, it's there's going to be somebody who's going to be profoundly disappointed. There's going to be a first-time Grand Slam champion. Whoever won was going to take over number one. In as much as we should care about these things, both – Wozniacki and Halep, I think, are two generally likable professional figures. They're close in age. Maybe it was just one of those matches to sit back and enjoy. Um, for Wozniacki, she gets to the U.S. Open final in, in 2009 as a teenager, and it, it's a nice run. But um, I don't, I don't know if she she was a, a severe underdog against Kim Kleisters. She gets back to the U.S. Open final um, with Serena Williams, and again is a severe underdog. This was a final that she had a real chance at winning. I mean, this was going to feel different to her had she lost that match, her third Grand Slam final. Um, And as for Halep, I I think she walks away from this saying, at the one hand, yes, this was another opportunity where I wasn't able to close, but given her tournament, given the context, given, as you say, the wars she had earlier in the tournament, that semifinal match is as good a match as there was male or female the entire tournament. That Kerber semifinal was just terrific theater, um, I, I think Halep can't be too profoundly disappointed. I mean, obviously, she was a few games away from winning her first major, but in, in the big picture, the fact that she was just in the third set of a final when um, she had ample opportunity in the previous rounds to have uh, been bounced, I think she's probably happy just to have been there. Again, it's a little like, um, I mean, obviously, a completely different type of player, but not unlike Madison Keys. I think Halep is too good not to eventually win a major. There's There's just too much game and athleticism there. The French Open is obviously, you know, if, if the draw were today and we assume she's healthy and recovered from her ankle injury and her dehydration, 
she's probably your favorite. Um, but I, I mean, I think the other thing too is we, we're always, we always prefer when Serena Williams is is in the draw. But I thought the women's matches were overall more entertaining than the men. I thought that Federer winning Federer winning twenty is a great story. But you know what, Carolyn Wozniacki finally ten years into this thing validating her number one ranking that was a nice story too i thought that the, the theater and the drama was just as good the quality of the matches all around were better on the women's side i, I totally mean, i totally agree with pure that entertainment wise too you know i mean people like to say that women's sports are not as entertaining as men sometimes and i think this tournament totally blew that out of the water i'm totally with you i also <laughs> think that um I mean, someone that's interesting we could talk about is Maria Sharapova. But also remember, too, that without Serena Williams and without Azarenka, who I don't think we've talked about enough, two-time champion there who, you know, in, in theory is still kind of sort of in the prime of her career, um, there were some holes in the draw. And Sharapova did not come through yet again, uh, former champion. We can talk a little bit about that. But I, but I thought um, if, if this is – if we got a glimpse of the post-Serena world in women's tennis – uh, we're we're going to be okay here. I agree. Let's talk about your favorite person to talk about. Who's that? <laughs> Nick Curious. Oh, Jamie. Um, yeah, Lose, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with Curious. In, in, in four sets, not blown out. I mean, four tight sets. Oh, good, good match. In the fourth round, uh, he played pretty well throughout the whole tournament. I mean, he was very contained and, you know, seemed very focused. Do we feel that this is sort of something that will stick around. I mean, he also played very well going into the tournament. Can you see him sort of gradually making his way up? I mean, Dimitrov sort of had that last year where he little by little made his way up and, and you know, he had a great end of the year. Um, and now he's continued that into 2018. Maybe will we see that with Kyrgios this year? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to uh, define our terms. I mean, can he keep going up? Yes. Will his ranking get higher? Yes. Is he ready to win majors? No. That I don't think so. But, um, no, I liked what I saw from Kyrgios. I mean, I also think, and I, I wrote about this a little bit, he is such a mystifying guy in a lot of ways. And I think, um, you know, he's, he's had one indefensible act with Stan Wawrinka, which now almost three years ago. But, um, I mean, that was just uh, whatever, a red card, whatever you want. That that was just um, indefensible. All his other lapses of the self-sabotaging variety. I also think that um, the one, one thing I wrote about it that I, I noticed he's the whole tennis establishment he doesn't have much use for, and he, you know, pick your cliche, plays to his own drumbeat, and he, um, you know, re- rejects tennis convention. But there's a real kind of likable populism to him. He spends a lot of time with kids. He spends a lot of time with the crowds. He wants to play on these smaller, more intimate stadiums. He's not the kind of guy who's sort of jetting in and jetting out. I mean, you you see him walking around the grounds, and he's talking about basketball. And I think um, his his maturity is catching up to his physical talents. But it's it's really unique, I think, to see a a young athlete like that who does things his own way, but sort of gravitates to the people. Um, I thought we saw maturity from him. We didn't see the the usual. I mean, remember, in 2017, he was literally booed off the court. Mm-hmm. Um, much different this year. I think the fans have taken to him a lot more. And I, I'd say B-plus tournament, maybe. Great great for the first week. A, a winnable match against Dimitrov, 
who then lost to Kyle Edmund, so that's got to sting a little bit extra for um, for Kyrgios. Kyrgios gets through that match, and he very easily could have been in the semifinals. Yeah. But, um, no, I think this is a, a work in progress. And, again, I mean, playing in Australia, playing in your home slam is a different set of pressures than when he, he goes elsewhere. He played doubles, which, in retrospect, maybe not the smartest thing. At the same time, kind of cool that one of the big stars of the tournament is out there on court two on a hot Thursday playing a, a three-set doubles match. I'm not sure I would advise him to do that if I were his coach, but I like that he's uh, he thinks in those terms. So he, he remains a, um, a mystifying figure. I think there's some good signs, some good takeaways. I still, still think he needs a coach. I mean, there were, there were times when uh, he was playing Dimitrov and they would show Dimitrov's box, and you look over and there was, you know, Danny Valverde, there were two guys in the box. And then they would show Kyrgios's box, and it was absolutely packed. But then you realized it wasn't, and he was yelling at him about his rackets, and he was telling him to stand. I don't know how people do. Can you imagine, uh, you know, a 20, 20 uh, you know, you're, you're a, uh, I'm a, I'm a grown ass man. And Should I'm, we I'm, stand? Yeah, exactly. Stand? Exactly. Sit? That was a, a funny. Uh, um, you saw that. Yeah. Um, but it also occurred to me there, there wasn't an actual I mean, tennis mind Andy in the Murray box. written all over it, though. I yeah, mean. exactly. But at least Andy Murray has True. In yes. mo- multiple sort of. You know, Yvonne Lendl's sitting there, and he's one of the, and right, Moresmo right. before fair, him, fair. and Jazz Green, and... I'm um, on your side when it comes to Curios. I think a lot of people... I like, no, but I, I was, uh, I mean, overall, I think he's, he's, he's a force of good, he's exciting, I don't, I mean, I think fundamentally he's a good guy. I did think it was funny, though, that he had his, his doubles partner was sort of playing the role, but there wasn't a font of tennis wisdom. For all the people in his box, it was the brother, and then, you know, the agent, and the publicist, and the parents, but... There wasn't an actual Pure tennis mind in there. support. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, no, that's, no a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. So um, he was with Sebastian Grosjean. That uh, did not continue. I, I think um, I think we were talking last year about, I had a couple people tell me, you want to be the next, the coach after the coach for Nick Curio. So you don't, you don't want to take him now. You want to be the one who comes when he's 26. And I, I think now, if he held up a, a vacancy sign, I think a lot of, people would be intrigued i think he's come a long way in the, in the last year do you think he will do that though or do you think he's waiting for someone to come to him um yeah i mean i think there are ways and you know agents play a role in this too of sort of sending out hey if you're interested yeah. i may have an opportunity for you um i just think right now he probably doesn't want to yeah. coach and it, it, it's going okay i mean as you say he played well in in the tune-ups and getting to the you know, getting to the fourth round and losing to Dimitrov's nothing to be ashamed of. It was a high level match. Could have, you know, tiebreakers could have gone either way. But um, no, I mean, I, I just, what is the, um, what's the ceiling for this guy? I guess is my question. I think everyone sees the talent. Everyone knows the talent. Will he put it together to win majors? Is this Marat Safin who wins a couple majors and has a good time and is always dangerous, but. Um, also at, least some he's not, uh, at least he's not getting bit by snakes or something on some reality TV show. At least. He's, oh, wow. uh, is that a Bernie Tomic reference you're throwing? Yes. I think we I think we need to uncouple Curious from uh, Bernie Tomic, by the way. But um, anyway, what um, I'm I'm curious to you. I um this this was a big topic in Australia, but also people writing to me was the website, the technology. Yes. And it started out as like, oh, the website's slow, and people a lot of times gripe about this. And then I actually... No, it was awful. I, awful, right? Yes. Which, which to me is just stunning. 
I mean, people, everyone's always displeased with technology, right? Everyone, you look at ratings for apps and no one's ever says this is, this piece sings, it's flawless. But I was absolutely shocked. I mean, the Australian Open is usually anyone, great. Anyone that's been there sees this firsthand, the, the bean bags and the water spritzers, and there are always some innovations and the players love it and they bring in the koala bears. I mean, literally every touch has been thought of. And I think from the fan experience, yeah, every previous years it's been great, right? Yeah, I mean, their social media is awesome. They, you know, the website is usually very clean. They're very good about updating things. And, you know, it's usually very spelled out where you can get certain information on the website. The app was full of errors the first couple of days. You could not get a score. Um, stats, I mean, you still stats couldn't. Uh, um, the, the thing, too, was that, I mean, the U.S. Open has a reputation for, you know, Mixing up photos, you, you know, Nadal is playing, and it's that's what I Yelena mean. Exactly, Ocepeco's yeah, exactly, face, right? exactly. Fine, like that's really funny. We can laugh at that, but like at least the scores are correct. Well, at least at it's least, functional. Yeah, but when I mean, I'm literally not there. Sometimes, like literally not in Australia. So I'm, I need scores. Like I need something that I can count on. I mean, when you're sitting in a, a media room at a tournament, you the tournament provides you with the scores and and you know you have a computer right you, in, there front was, of me, in front of in the press me. room there was a lot of like screw it i'm just going to google this stuff yeah it was stunning and i think the other thing is that this event probably more than any other major really positions itself as global it, it has the, it's the grand slam of asia pacific and they have an office in china we always hear about i just don't know how this happens i mean it's just absolutely baffling to me this this is you know the the new york times having forgetting to run spell check on the front page i mean this is just such a fundamental error and for a tournament again that like has bean bags where players can relax no, i mean and it's their, just and their social media account i mean they're on it in terms of like during the finals like they'll get you gifts and videos of you know federer wiping tears off his face like seconds after it exactly. happens like i mean they are they deliver in that respect whereas some other tournaments uh Twitter accounts and things are not so great. Uh, you know, they're they're they have it all together in, in that respect. It's just this was the the upset of the tournament, and I also feel like we all got a glimpse of uh, when the technology isn't up to speed. It really changes the entire experience. Um, yeah, this this was. Uh, you you hope that's corrected because this was just. The, the first day, I'm like, this. I didn't even know if they've I was on the right side. Yeah, out, they've got so. a year to figure it out. Exactly. <laughs> um, what else can we talk about real quick in our remaining time? Um, Sasha's Vera of another disappointment. Um, I was going to ask you about the, what else the we got? probably the big, big story. Talk about Twitter, uh, Mr. Sandgren and yeah. his whole situation. Oh, we have to go there. Um, you want to go there? I mean, yeah, we I, have to. I, I um, like. No, I mean, this. I know you said your 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 piece sort of and and explained it all, and you guys had a good conversation on on tennis channel about it. Um, you know the implications, just generally for you know not just him, but the implications generally of social media accounts and what you post there and and what your interactions are there. But we should probably. Yeah, I, I think it. you know this is. I think this goes way beyond tennis, Sandgren. I mean, I think this was really sort of a cultural discussion. Obviously, in this polarized time we live in. Responses were all over the map from this is appalling and disgraceful to what does this have to do with tennis, you snowflakes, some of the players got into it. I think the bottom line is that this wasn't just one or two tweets. This seemed to be something resembling a pattern over years. Some of these were indefensible. I think that um, 
you know, I, I give Tennis Angren some credit. I mean, you know, you look at we, it, it's maybe it's a bit of a uh, false equivalency, but I brought this up in the context of Margaret Court, who stands by her views and only men and women should be married, and this is how I think. Tennis Angren actually, his tweets the past few days have That's indicated bad. that he's reconsidered this. He's made some apologies. He's made some reassessments. He's disavowed the alt-right. I also think this is a story that, I mean, so often in sports you have a scandal and it happens and we figure out how we react to it. There's a, a doping test. We figure out how what severely, you know, yeah. what side are you on or how severely do you want to sanction the player? I think with this, it's it's evolving. And his ranking is such he's going to be playing a lot of events. He'll have a lot more time to be asked about this. He's going to have to interact with colleagues. I and mean, I think this is a, a fluid story. And I think it's at some level... You know, it's 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 actions over words. Um, he but released a, a long yeah, tweet. I mean, the, I mean there was I, there was a long statement, and people yeah. picked it apart. And you know, again, I mean, I, I thought that when he read his initial statement in the press conference, I thought that was a little bit disingenuous. I mean, first of all, sort of casting yourself as the victim seemed like uh, it was a little bit tone deaf. It also, he, I mean, he, he walked in there and read this quote, and I wasn't sure was this a Bible verse, was this some Ann Rand quote, and then you realize, oh shit, that's uh, whoops. Oh shoot! That's uh, Sign. that's um, <laughs> a, a statement that he's written. So then you sort of wanted to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Back up! Let me take notes on this." I didn't know what the context was. I mean, it was really weird. It was he very just, directed at at the media too. But he just sort of walked in. He didn't say like, "No questions." First, I want to read something I wrote, and I mean, he just walked in and started reading his phone, and it read like a quotation from again. I thought it was he was quoting Ann Rand or something, and then I realized, oh, it's his. This is a statement. And uh, the, the whole thing played a little strange. And you wanted to sort of raise your hand and, and in some level, I'm, you know, I, I, I wish I had and said, listen, this statement's all well and good. But here you've got this platform specifically. Are there apologies you want to make? Is there anything you want to walk back? Are there clarifications you want to make? It just seemed a little bit too pat to yeah. read a statement. But again, I, mean, I think his subsequent statements suggested, if nothing else, he's given this thought. Um, I spoke to him um, before any of this came to light, I spoke to him earlier in the week for Tennis Channel, and you know he's. Uh, and I, I want to choose my words carefully, but you know he seemed like a, a philosophical guy you could have a conversation with. Mm-hmm. I think that um, you know that this this alt right, some of, some of the retweets were um, justifiably appalling to a lot of people, but but again, I think the fact that he has walked away and hasn't done what Margaret Court's done and sort of owned it. I mean, at some level, he's said, look, I, I'm a work in progress. And again, the fact that he's issuing apologies, cynically, you could say, is this his sponsor? Cynically, you could say, oh, now he's dealing with the fallout and he doesn't want to get booed when he plays. But, you know, I still think it says something about the guy that he's yeah. uh, recognizing that this is controversial and, and he's uh, reassessing. And again, I think we see how this plays out. I mean, at some level, what happened here? Somebody made a series of tweets. And and again, I mean, I think this was more than just one or two ill-considered remarks. I mean, there did seem to be something resembling a pattern here. But he's he's free to follow whoever he wants to follow, retweet who he wants to tw- tweet out. People are entitled to get outraged, and I think there was a, certainly a fair amount of that. And now we'll sort of see what what this brings. Um, you're right, Jamie. It is, it is a reminder that uh, tweet, tweeting is forever. I suspect five years ago, whenever it was that quote, his eyes were bleeding. He did not anticipate that he was going to reach the Australian Open quarterfinal and this was going to be uh, international news, but those are the, the risks you 
you undertake on social media. Well, yeah, I think I I don't think it was fair. Like you can't judge someone or whatever for following or viewing certain accounts. I think we all sort of follow or look at certain people that we may not support or you know like or believe in their viewpoints, right? But I think what when it does when when it is grounds for discussion is when the interactions or you know something with that kind of content or that person that's when you can sort of start to ask questions. So the fact that he deleted everything. Yeah, which which way? I mean, that's another uh, thing, too. Somebody's going, how cowardly is that? The flip side to me, I mean, again, I think I think it's too easy to just sort of say, hey, everyone deserves a second chance. Let's start fresh. But I think the flip side of that is it's it's too callous to say he's made his own bed and now I agree. let's castigate the I guy. Mean, I mean, he, the fact that he's deleting tweets suggests to me that maybe he's reconsidering uh, some of his... I mean, I, I let's just see how this plays out. I, I think is my uh, I agree. My takeaway. Lesson learned is that like you, you are said, what you tweet. Yes, I totally stand by that. <laughs> um, any last bit here? I guess any sort of forecasting, big takeaways. I mean, everyone should go on SI.com and read your fifty thoughts. But any other takeaways besides those? Um, other than the fifty thoughts, um, no. I mean, I think I think that. A lot of times the Australian Open sets up the year, right? So we had Rafa Roger, and that ended up being the storyline of 2017. And they split the four majors. And we had Serena Williams beating Venus. Obviously, we then shortly thereafter learned about Serena's pregnancy. But but sometimes the Australian Open is this nice sort of uh, precursor to the year. I think this year, who knows? I think both men's and women's tennis is, is wider open than... Um, it's it's been in a long time. I mean, ironically, the women's draw was probably more formful than the men's. We hadn't seen that in a while. But Carolyn Wozniacki has something to build on. To a lesser extent, Simona Holop does. Roger Federer has now won three of the last five majors. Health is going to be a big issue. But you didn't have the feeling that the Australian Open sort of was this precy. You didn't have the feeling that the uh, Australian Open was this harbinger that's going to set the storylines in, in place for the year. It was... Uh, a strange tournament in the end, not particularly surprising. Both number two seeds won. Uh, if I had said to you two and a half weeks ago, Jamie, Roger Federer, and Wozniacki are going to win the titles, you'd say, yeah, it's about right. I could see that. This was not Ostapenko. Um, in- injuries, problematic. But uh, we, are, we are off and running on 2018, and um, Roger Federer is, uh, is still riding high. That would be my, uh, that'd be my headline. Sounds that good. good? All right, pleasure. We will uh, we will have a guest in a few days, but uh, that is a wrap up on the 2018 Australian Open. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for all your uh, suggestions, tweets, texts during the tournament. You can get this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever uh, podcasts are sold. You can feel free to leave a rating. Thanks as always to Jamie who does a great job here, and we will have a guest in another podcast in a couple days. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Get some sleep.